Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for April 2019. My name is Mark Freeman and I'm one of the editors at Senses of Cinema and with me today is my wonderful co-host Kirsten Stevens who is a writer, she's an academic and she's a programmer. And in our rotating third chair this month, we welcome back producer and academic Liz Burke. Liz, great to have you back on the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Mark. On today's show, we're starting with Lee Chang Dong's film Burning, which has finally made its way into Australian cinemas after an extensive festival run. It's a film based on a novel by Haruki Murakami and explores the love, mystery and inherent loneliness of three young people living in South Korea, played by Yu Ah-in, John Jong-so and Stephen Yun from the Walking Dead TV series. Next, we'll pay tribute to one of the most significant people in film history, the recently departed but much-loved Agnes Varda, who passed away last month at the age of 90. And then we'll take a look at the romantic comedy, following on from Suchetta Chakraborty's excellent interview with Elizabeth Sankey in the most recent issue of Senses of Cinema. We'll round out, as always, with our recommendations for April. And for patrons of Senses of Cinema, Liz, Kirsten and I are going to get our bunny on and talk about the best films to watch this Easter. So now, let's get on with the show. Burning follows the character of Jong Su, played by Yu Ah-in, who works mundane jobs eking out a living in Paju on the northern border of South Korea. He meets up with a neighbour from his youth, Hei Mi, John Jong So, and although it appears romance might be likely, Hei Mi disappears to Africa, leaving Jong Su in charge of her cat, Boyle. Hei Mi returns with the enigmatic Ben, Stephen Yun, a Gatsby-esque figure she's met in Africa, and the three form a not terribly comfortable triangle of desire, longing and possible criminal activity. It's a film that plays out slowly and the tension escalates very incrementally. But the analysis of these relationships is, for my money, incredibly powerful. Kirsten, how did you find that film? I I love this film. I have to admit I only watched it very, very recently, um, having missed some of the festival screenings. But it was just a real pleasure. I'm not always great with sort of slow-moving, slow-burn films, um, but this one kept me captivated and just stunningly beautiful, some of the vistas in there at the same time as the cities could be quite busy and anonymous. Mm. I I mean, you're you're mentioning the the kind of slowness of it. This is the second time I saw it in preparation for for this pod, and I, too, was captivated by it. The person behind me did nothing but... And at one point they just leant over to their companion and said, I'm sorry, this is so boring. (laughs) And I wanted to give a little bit of a smack to the face over that one um, because I, I agree it's, it is slow but it just kind of winds you up and, and gets you so involved in those characters. Liz, how did you find Yeah, it? it does build in that interesting sort of way. It yeah. is, you know, the slow burn, two of the main characters meet in the first scene. You know, what are we, we, we don't really know what we're being set up for and it just builds and builds and builds and then it has that scene, which I'm sure you know what I'm referring to, that pivotal scene at sunset with yeah. the main female lead yeah, dancing. dancing. And then it does this amazing atmospheric shift and I don't quite know how he does that. Yes. But it does somehow move from realism, almost like this small scale, uh, you know, drama of these three people, almost like a Jules and Jim, yeah. into something much different. And I find it hard to describe what that much different is, difference is, but something far more mysterious and atmospheric and working in a different register than realism. Yeah. And, and I think one thing to, to point out about the rhythm of that film is, I mean, 
you're right, it's really slow. There's there's nothing much that's happening, but you get to understand these characters. And I think you have, you know, a fair whack of time with uh, just Haimi and Jong-Soo kind of hanging out and her being sort of a little bit weird and him being a little bit weird. More than a little bit. <laughs> I know. And then she disappears and comes back with Ben, the Stephen Yun character, and he adds this whole new dynamic. And then suddenly that weird relationship that existed between uh, Jong Su and Hei Mi starts to shift and change as allegiances start to move mm. in the relationship to Ben, who may or may not be a really awful person, um, but might also be totally fine. And we're, and we're yeah. constantly trying to second guess what those relationships are. And then, as you say, there's a significant shift probably about two-thirds of the way in, where the film almost reinvents itself and says, well, I've set up this tension. What happens after this? Yeah. And I think as well something that adds to the drawn-out nature and the sort of the slowness of the first um, part of this as well is how blank and unreadable Jong-Soo is mm. for a lot of it. And I've sort of been reading a number of different takes on his character and a lot of them I think are quite kind, sort of saying that, um, he's just, you know, a little bit shy or a bit sort of child, sort of grown into man body, but not quite comfortable there yet, a little bit. Um, but I found that probably the most frustrating thing was how animated Jaime was mm. and how just unreadable and unpenetrable yeah. uh, yeah. Su's face was yeah. throughout so much of this. Yeah. And I think for me, though, I liked the film a great deal. At the same time, I was just slightly disappointed with it because his previous film, Poetry, is one of my favourite contemporary films. Um, And I think that's because one of the differences is the main character is this older woman who lives in a small town and without going into the storyline, she's a much more warmer, empathetic character that you're following her fortunes through and it's her story and you want to know what's going to happen. And, yeah, so I found it more accessible, even though it has that same atmosphere of slowness and building up their world just through tiny, tiny details of the world. Yeah. I will say, I mean, in terms of its pace, you know, the second time around I did think, actually, there there are sections of this that are a little bit slow. I don't know that we needed him wanking over the <laughs> the soul tower, like, over and over again. Like, he, he's really doing himself a... I think I've repressed that scene. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> about three scenes. He just keeps like, that, that's a hell of an erection. He's just, he doesn't leave it alone. He's always looking out of that window, looking at this tower yeah. and, and going the tug. And and I do think, well, you know, I get the idea, but perhaps you, you could like put it away for a little while. Yeah. But I did think that that scene, the more that I thought about it and the more that I thought about the character of Jaime and her invisible um, tangerine yeah. and... Yes. how much of his fascination with her was in his head. It was yeah. very much an imagined... Yeah. Um, and I, my one criticism of the film is probably um, the fact that the Jaime character didn't really get to develop. It became very much how she was caught between the two male characters. And there were hints at more to her, and I would have liked to have seen that a bit more Mm. developed rather than it um, being this imagined version of Jong-Soo's character in terms of how he imagined she kind of fit into his world or for Ben what it seemed to be this kind of fascination with silly 
working girls. Yeah. yeah. So she's a bit of a fantasy figure, isn't she? We don't, you don't really know what's going on with her or what she wants. And I think I probably did find that opaqueness of the characters all the way through it of mm. actually who are these people. And, yes, you're building up a mystery, but, yeah, I just wanted perhaps a bit more about who they actually are. I think it's difficult when you've got a film where – your lead character, this young guy, is so opaque all the way through it. Yeah. And I also felt there's probably like another layer going on about Korean society and culture, mm. about class and money yeah. and politics yes. that I don't quite get, yep. you know, yeah. because having very little um, knowledge of it, really aware that, you know, the rich guy's suburb is Gangnam, where Gangnam style yeah. comes from. Yeah. Um yeah, so that, I felt there was something that I probably wasn't getting out of it yeah. as well. Whereas Jong-soo's you know, family home is literally within earshot of the North Korean propaganda yeah. broadcasts, right. which is just, so. That's, yeah. that's a really interesting geographical And it's thing. a little crumbling hovel yeah. as well. You yeah. know, that's class difference is huge. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that I grappled with, particularly with the Hamid character, was whether I was seeing her as as is, that that I got the sense that, Initially, I suppose, I thought that she had constructed herself almost as, you know, the manic pixie dream girl. Like, she is kind of the construct. Yeah, and then yeah. later on you start thinking, but I don't understand Jong Soo well enough to know whether this is a subjective perspective on her. Is yeah. Has he constructed her like yes. that? Does he construct Ben as this kind of Gatsby-esque yeah. figure? Um, how much of that am I expected to take on face value? Yeah, whose perspective is it? Yeah. And that, that idea of construction, um, I, I'm quite interested in how that's... I, I like to think it's played with in the film. I guess I sort of read into it as being that there is that element, the way that she tells stories and um, you're never sure which ones are true and which mm. ones aren't, that yeah. trying to work out whether the well actually yeah. Did existed. Did she fall down a well? We don't know. Yes. Um, and then finally her disappearance... Did she actually, did something nefarious happen to her? Yeah. Or is this another one of her stories? Is she manipulating the world around her, um, yeah. constructing it in a way, you know, it didn't work out with either of these men. So she removes herself, but in a way that leaves sort of stories to tell and about she does, that disappearance. she does talk about disappearance all the time. Yeah. That, that, you know, sitting there watching it for that second time, she literally says, what I want to do is just disappear. And you think, well... Did she just disappear? Because, I mean, she does disappear. But we don't know kind of what the the motivation behind that is. Mm. Has something terrible happened to her? Has she literally, as you say, just said, you know, I'm going to go off and reinvent myself in another yeah, place? the next town. Which, and, which would be perfectly motivated by her character. And what happened to the cat? Is the cat Well, <laughs> Well, you know, the, the cat that we never see, Boyle, who maybe comes back later on... Um, you know, I don't know. Is the cat a real cat? I don't the, know. The big question. Is, that's the real question from the film. See, yeah. I, I probably spent far too much time thinking about this when I was watching this film. Um, <laughs> probably because I know too many people with cats. But I, the thing that got me about when the cat reappeared at the end was it was getting picked up and touched by all these strangers, but her cat didn't like strangers. I'm yeah. going, there is no way that that cat would get over that that quickly. Yeah. Particularly yeah. if their owner disappeared. So, yeah. So, so the characterization of the cat for me was a little bit... It's a bit of a clue, right? <laughs> so that's not Boyle. 
which it, then leads us to some other... It's a different mm. cat. Yeah. She may have gone off with the cat to another town. She might have. Life. She's picked up the litter box and off she's gone, which, mm. you know, is something you can imagine her doing yeah. without question. Um, one of the films that did remind me of was um, the, the original version of The Vanishing. Um, right. The, the Georges... Is it Sluzer? Slizer? I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Um, which does have this kind of huge build-up to, to a vanishing. Um, and it sort of has a... Um, that obviously has this incredibly overwhelming payoff, and I think that Burning does as well. That you know, no spoilers, but you know that final sequence is really kind of full-on harsh, um, impactful, particularly after you've been sort of lulled into this quite soft um, approach to the narrative. Well, it's completely unexpected. I mean, yeah. in retrospect, you can see the clues that yes. it makes sense yes. that yeah. this is what would happen, yeah. but I don't think anyone would be expecting it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it is that sort of duality of the, it seems narratively unmotivated until you kind of start thinking backwards and like, oh no, actually this is sort of yeah, where it makes sense. Yeah. Um, the headspace of that character was always leading And all towards. the clues about burning greenhouses yeah, and yeah. all of that, it makes sense. And, and I do find the, the Stephen Yeun character, again, I mean, I think the thing about this film is that you do fall into these characters that are inscrutable and yet there's enough in there to kind of mm. keep you tuned into them. I find the, the Ben character super interesting. Yeah. Somebody who appears to be very confident, very kind of together. He understands the way the world works. And yet there is also the suggestion of some, you know, criminal activity that, that he says that he likes to go and burn greenhouses. Mm. He likes to destroy things. But I mean, clearly he's destroying the, mm. the livelihood of, of people who are struggling yeah. on farms and stuff yeah. like that. So He's kind of a bad dude. Um, but but his relationship with Hey Me, what's the nature of that? Are they in love? Or is he just kind of using her as, as a bit of a plaything? Or is what, she using him? Or is she using him? What's his relationship with Jong Su? I mean, it almost feels like maybe they were about to become buddies, but, but mm. then they can't be because there is this Hey Me sort of thing in the, in between them. I found him super fascinating. It almost reminded me of Hitchcock in a way, yeah. of these opaque characters with perhaps sinister intentions, but you're never quite sure whether they do. Yeah. I mean, it's a really extraordinary film, I think. Mm. Um, you know, I, I could imagine, though, you know, like the person behind me, if, if you're not prepared to climb on board with it, it's not going to hit you with a whole stack of narrative information and you know, propulsion um, for probably the first, what, hour and a half almost. Yeah. Um, so it does take its time, but but I found that the time that it took was... Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I really enjoyed its build and the payoff and just wondering what, the, you know, we're trying to work out the mystery along the way. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I found that, that when things were really super quiet, like when there is kind of random stuff going on, he's looking at the frigging tower or whatever, I mean... I reckon the faces of those three actors, like, they're just so indelible. She's got these amazing eyes. Mm. Stephen Yun has the biggest cheekbones you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. Like, they're huge. Um, you Are In has this incredible mouth, and it's like those faces just really imprint themselves upon you. It's just a real... Um, one of the things I sort of walk out of just thinking about how they looked. Um, yeah. And then when you come down to that scene that you mentioned before, Liz, about her dancing... As mm. the as the sun goes down, like it, some of it is just beautiful. To yeah, look at. 
And it's one of those scenes that I find when I watch and it feels so mysterious. You go, just how is the director doing this? Because if you kind of analyse it, just like what are the shots, what are the music, Mm. it's like still don't get why it's working so mysteriously in terms of pace and imagery and music. But it really works in such a strange way. And that that payoff of her dancing, you know, comes after just this really fascinating discussion that they have on the porch of his house in Paju um, that goes on and on and on and takes all of these interesting and intricate twists and turns and then sort of erupts in this this dancing, um, which is just incredible. Which was also her tearful face at the end of that dance, which I guess kind of disrupts that sort of what seemed to be quite a joyful kind of moment was also one of those really interesting moments about Jaime's character where you're starting to see that the facade that she kind of builds, the imagined world that she kind of constructs crumbling um, and revealing a bit more and sort of that that I wanted wanted more for. But that's, you know, precipitates the moment where where she vanishes. Yeah, where everything really starts. All right, well, if you would like to talk to us about um, your impressions of burning, I know it's been rolling out for over a year, I think, across a whole range of festivals. Come to our Facebook page at sensesofcinema.com and uh, leave a message there on our episode thread. This month, we pay tribute to a true virtuoso of world cinema, Agnes Varda, who sadly left us over the last month, aged 90 years. Born Arlette Varda in Belgium on 30 May 1928, Varda passed away on the 29th of March 2019 with more than 50 directing credits to her name. Varda's contribution to cinema over the last half century and more has been truly exceptional. Dubbed the mother of the French New Wave, her feature A La Ponte Côte, uh, released in 1955, has been acclaimed as the first film of the Nouvelle Vague, inspiring many of the male filmmakers whose contributions to this movement have received perhaps more sustained attention in film history textbooks. From the time of this first feature, Varda built an exceptional career as a storyteller, a documentarian, a photographer, a visual essayist, an installation artist, and, in the words of our former podcast host Eloise Ross, a dreamer. Varda's unique style of storytelling resonates throughout her work, mixing whimsy, curiosity, social critique, subjective explorations and a keen photographic eye to deliver such treasured films as Cleo from 5 to 7, L'Unchante, L'Autre Pas, uh, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and more recently Faces Places, among so many, many more. In 2017, Varda received an Honorary Academy Award for her contribution to cinema. Significantly, this award recognised not only her past contributions, uh, but honoured an artist whose work was ongoing. It is with heartfelt thanks that we honour Varda's cinema and with great sadness that we mourn the loss of films yet unmade. Mark, Liz, what are your fondest encounters with Varda? Um, I'm just really sad that she's gone. It's such a, a, a weird thing in that, you know, we all knew she was 90, even in Faces Places she mentioned the fact that she was really aware of her mortality, um, but the fact that she's gone still comes as a surprise. Uh, just thinking back on her cinema you know, after that introduction, I've always kind of thought, I think I prefer her documentaries to her fiction films. And then you start thinking, well, but there is Vagabond, you know, and the one that I watched most recently, Jaco de Nantes, which I just loved, you know, they're brilliant. And, and so it's not like she was better at one than the other. 
Um, they were both equally incredible, and I just think she's such an enormous loss to cinema. As you say, she's a huge figure in film history, um, and you know we're we're going to be missing her a lot. I think, Liz. And then as well as her docos and her dramas, there's also the video installations, which we don't really know that much about. I guess mm. um, we can just see something about them from the Beaches of Agnes, mm. which is very much about that. So. Yeah. I think I admired that enormous pragmatism. It just felt to me like she was someone who was saying, what can I get the money to do? Like, I can't, I'm, I'm, no one's going to give me a big budget, so I'll do a little video installation. Mm. Like, just the amount of work that she put out from La Pointe Court in the mid-50s was just enormous. Mm. And the way that she was very willing and very excited to be able to pick up different types of technology, you know, mm. the portability that a video camera gave her and the ability to go out and capture images in a new way. She wasn't sort of restricted to just one kind of format and one way of um, approaching storytelling or communicating. She was, uh, she had this avid curiosity that came yeah. through in all of the different ways that she kind of communicated. Yeah, I was just watching The Gleaners and I again last oh. week, which actually isn't my favourite, though I think it's great. And, you know, she does talk about mortality in that too because yeah. she puts, puts the camera up and films the skin on her hand. Right. But I also read an interview with her when she was... And she talks about picking up... And this is 1999 when she was making it, like small-scale prosumer, prosumer camera, and that that really changed her practice at that mm. stage, that she realised, I don't have to wait and gather a big crew around me. I can just pick up my little camera and start filming. So she's just so vibrant and contemporary, and I think that's why it felt so strange that she died, because even though, yes, she's 90, it she felt so young in many yeah. ways and you can see in you know faces places she is frail yeah. and she's got she's got health issues and she talks about those health issues but there's still such a sparkiness to her yeah um, there was so much life in her right up till the end even as her body was perhaps sort of betraying her a little bit um but uh, the personality and as you say the vibrancy was still so very present and the, such a, a great commitment to or commitment or interest in just community. She was just interested in people, which is why you take something like, you know, Gleaners is one, um, uh, Faces Places is another, where she goes like, oh, I might just take a camera and walk around and speak yeah. to people. And, you know, Daguerre Tips is another yep. a very old doco where she's just recording the life of the street in which she lives. Yep. Um, yeah, so there's that very strong interest in community. And, mm. you know, she's not... A star like the male Nouvelle Vague directors yeah. are stars. Yeah. Yes, she's you know she's just very much well. I'm making films and I'm being very practical about it. So I've always admired that practicality yeah. of just I'm just doing it and and uncovering stories that that would be overlooked. I mean, yes. even when you look at a, a fiction film like Vagabond, yeah. which is just like saying, here's this woman who didn't belong to society by her own choice. She navigated her way through life, even though it was a short life, in, in a way that is unconventional. And she turns a, a kind of narrative focus on somebody who would be overlooked. It's the same way that the thing that I got the most out of Faces Places, for example, is her just knocking on a door and saying, hey, who lives here? What happened to you in your life? Let's take a picture. Yeah. And suddenly there are these huge narratives that start to emerge out of nothing, which I love. Yeah, and with Vagabond, I really love the lack of sentimentality mm. in which she infuses the main character. 
you know, where you know, we don't necessarily feel that sorry. I mean, I guess sometimes we do, but it's not saccharine that sort mm. of way. And again, as in terms of ordinary people, a lot of those characters in Vagabond are real people. Mm. who she set up to talk about this fictional character. Yeah. So she always did mix these genres and have this hybridity. Yeah. Uh, I think one of my favourite films of hers is Cleo from Five to Seven. Um, just this, you know, two-hour film, two hours of a woman's life, but you see that woman change radically in her life. Yeah. And I guess it probably is a bit more high-budget and glamorous than some of her work. But I also think there's um, a great interview I read with her when she talks about the final shot in that film, which is a tracking shot, and then it suddenly ends. And she says, well, it ended because we ran out of film and I couldn't afford to buy any more. <laughs> so, again, it's that practicality. That's all I could do. So that's what I did. Yep. And I, you know, used it. I turned yeah. it into a strength. Yeah. And it is that wonderful thing about the craft of filmmaking is always sort of present there mm. in the work that she does yeah. um, in really interesting and fascinating ways, whether it's sort of the ending of the tracking shot or whether it's her filming her hand and talking about picking up the cameras. And, mm. and you know, I, I watched um, Jaco Dunant, as I said, um, last week, and I had not seen that one before. But before that, if we're, if we're playing favourites, I think my favourite has always been Beaches of Agnes, which I just, mm. like, weeping over that film. Um, but Jacques Denant is just beautiful and mixes three different kind of versions of a life. Some of it is, you know, the fictionalised narrativising of her husband's childhood. And then it will cut to scenes from his films that will then be reflected in, you know, whatever's happened in the, the narrative version of his life. And then it'll cut to Demi himself mm. directly addressing the camera. So it kind of does, it's sort of biopic documentary fiction um, and she managed to juggle those three states so beautifully in, in such a moving fashion it was just I was blown away by it I hadn't seen it before and so glad I had it's incredible and that um, points towards another one of her roles which is a film conservator because she spent a great deal of money and time after Jacques Demy died um, conserving his films getting great prints of his films and making sure that buying the rights back basically, and making sure that they were looked after properly. Yeah. And where where are you thinking of sitting her within, you know, we've mentioned that she's kind of considered, you know, the, the person who started the, the new wave. Where do we sit her with those bunch of dudes? Because, um, you know, if, 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 if you want me to... Stick the knife into Goddard a little. <laughs> you I'm, can. I'm, I'm happy, well, you know, afterfaces, places, I hate Goddard. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually don't necessarily place her that closely. I place her more with Chris Marquet okay. and Elaine Rene yep. as people who did lots of hybrid work. And liked cats. And yes, <laughs> they did all love their they cats. They did love their cats. Did Rene like cats? Yeah, I think I read somewhere okay. that, that they struck up a friendship and it was like, we're yeah. really different, but I really like cats. Yeah. So, and I think yeah. that group was a little bit separate from the Goddard, Truffaut, yeah. Yeah. you know, wonderfulness of it all. Yeah. yeah. I think her her career and her work exceeded the new wave. Yeah. Whereas I think a number of those filmmakers never really moved beyond that real sort of moment of the Nouveau Vague. Yeah. yeah. 
They oh. had their moment. Yeah. yeah. You can stick the knife in if you want, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could stick the knife in. I won't. But, but I, I think that that's true, that you have these filmmakers who were amazing, produced incredible stuff for a period of time, and then kind of faffed around a little bit as their careers continued. And as we've talked about, Varda said, well, I'm going to try this new thing. Yep. I'm going to do this other thing now. Yep. Why don't I try this? How about we just like get in a van and drive off and film stuff? And she found ways to innovate constantly, yep. whereas I, I, I feel like she moved out of that time. She mm -hmm. started it. She engaged with it. She moved on. She found other stuff, yep. um, whereas the others feel like they're very much contained within that mm -hmm. movement. And she broke broke out of that mould. And another interesting thing, I think, was how she chose to represent herself as she got older. So that in the last couple of years when she was very old, if she couldn't attend a film festival, she sent a cardboard cutout of herself. <laughs> so wonderful. Was that not the best? <laughs> you know, and using her haircut as like yeah. the symbol of who she is. Yes. So she was, in that sense, she was great at, you know, I, I think there's a thing sometimes she gets talked about as this really sweet old lady almost, but... I think she was incredibly shrewd about many matters, about self-representation. Um, you can buy a T-shirt from her merch shop. Well, well, well you, you met the I lady met herself. Her. Yeah, so, and that wasn't hard to do because, you know, on her website is the address of her office on Rue de Guerre in the 14th in Paris. And I've been told that she, you know, she's often at her office and you can just she doesn't mind people walking in. So I think this was in 2004. So I thought I'll try opening the door and seeing what's going on. Not expecting anything really. I'm just being a tourist. And I open the front door and there's Anya's father at an edit suite, probably using Final Cut Pro with a young editor she was working with. And what really struck me for a start was that the edit suite is in the front office as soon as you open the front door. It's not out the back. So filmmaking isn't this kind of sequestered, magical, special process. It's in the back. It's just in the front. So all her neighbours from Rue de Guerre are just walking in and out the whole time. She's chatting to them, making cups of tea. So I walked in and I tried using my not so great French to introduce <laughs> myself. Um, and she looked at me quite shrewdly, like I think she was really shrewd. And she said, would you prefer we speak English? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because obviously her English is perfect, yes. so why should we struggle on with my terrible French? <laughs> and she was working on a video installation at that time, and I told her that I was a filmmaker, I was a documentary maker. So she was like, sit down, I'll show you what I'm working on. Wow. And she actually asked me feedback about what she was working on. So that's what I mean about this lack of preciousness. Like someone walked in her door, oh, yeah, what do you think about it? You yeah. know, which... It, that's what I found amazing and what was very funny. So we're chatting and so I say to her, and this is so funny, I said to her, so madame, um, I know you love cats, but I'm a dog person and I name my dog after you. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended staying for a couple of hours. And again, wow. it was very much this um, I, uh, this neighbourhood feel of it was such a busy spot. Like the she had like a bell on the front door, like it was a shop. And people just kept coming in and out. And they were talking about what was going on in the street for the day. 
and you could buy DVDs directly from her. So, of course, I bought a stack of DVDs yes. directly strong from her. So, of course, she was quite shrewd in that business sort of yeah. way too. Like, yeah. she was there to earn a dollar. So I was so impressed about how her creativity and her practice was just part of the flow of everyday life. It wasn't anything that was apart from it. And that goes to your point of about being interested in ordinary people. Yeah. You yeah. know, she wasn't, you know, she was just, don't know that she thought of herself as an ordinary person, but she was just interested. So she asked me a heap of questions mm. about who I was and, you know, and what I was doing. And again, as I said, which amazed me, showed me footage and said, what do you think? So that was amazing. Yeah. And the last time I was in Paris, I did go back to that office again, and she wasn't there. There was a whole bunch of young PAs bustling around, and I asked where she was. And, and of course, she lived just across the road from her office. And they said, oh, Madame Vard is at home. Look, you can just go knock on her door if you want and see if she'll <laughs> say hello, which I didn't because I felt that's a bit intrusive because, yeah. like, this is just a couple of years ago. She was very old. It's like, oh, she's probably having a sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit different from going into someone's workplace than knocking on their front door. But yeah. that was still, like, amazing with the PA saying, oh, go and knock on her door. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. It's incredible life. Yeah. Incredible. So I was very lucky to meet her. Yes. And I think we're all lucky to watch all of her stuff too. Very I mean, I know at Mubi at the moment, Mubi, the, the wonderful streaming service, God bless it, um, has got a bit of a retrospective of her stuff. I've been watching some of the shorts that she's done. The the one on Black Panthers is super interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she's it's a terrible loss. but I watched Uncle Yanko the other Uncle day. Uncle Yanko's got, sweet. yeah, it's really cute, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So incredible, um, incredible life and incredible career. Yeah. Indeed. And just before we go, one thing, if people are on Twitter, there is a Twitter account called Radio Agnes, which one of her grandchildren is running, and it's just quotes from her. Oh. <laughs> just what he says, everyday sayings. Lovely. That's what she'd just brilliant. say. <laughs> her, uh, her words and her memories definitely will live on. Yes, they yes. will. So if you want to share your reminiscences with us about Agnes Varda and her amazing work and life, um, come visit us on the Senses of Cinema Facebook page, which is just facebook.com forward slash Senses of Cinema. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. So we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the cost of keeping Sensitive Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you were to subscribe to the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Census Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Census, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work that they do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Census Cinema, visit censusofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring you the journal throughout your film year. Among the sub-varieties of the lowly genre film 
the romantic comedy has been summarily relegated to the bottom of the pile, faring far below, for instance, the glorified Western, the latter's connections with American myth and history, guns and men presumably responsible for its considerably higher standing in the genre hierarchy. So writes Sucheta Chakraborty in her introduction to her interview with the director Elizabeth Sankey, whose film on the genre, unsurprisingly titled Romantic Comedy, premiered at the Rotterdam Film Festival. The interview, which is up on Senses of Cinema in the most recent issue, is rich with observations on the way the genre has operated and its relationship to both audiences and critical reception. Sankey speaks to the concept of the cool girl rather than Nathan Rabin's popular term manic pixie dream girl and how gender shapes and informs the nature of the comedy within this genre. Now, I'm prepared to confess the romantic comedy is one of my least favourite genres, even though there are a couple of films that I really love within it. Kirsten, what's your relationship with this enduring genre? I absolutely love it. Okay. I'm, and it, it is one of these things where for a long time it's been um, what I would have called a guilty pleasure or against my better judgment. I'm absolutely addicted to this genre. Um, but particularly reading um, the interview with Sankey and also works by um, Deborah German and people like that who have sort of turned a more critical eye towards romantic comedies. Um, I think we need to stop sort of thinking about it just as a guilty pleasure. They're problematic. They've got lots of issues with them, and I'm very willing to acknowledge that um, they don't necessarily always paint um, their characters or women in particular in the best light, but I'm addicted to them. <laughs> <laughs> Liz? Well, I'm a little bit like you, Mark, I have to say. That's not one of my favourites, except for the subgenre of 1930s and 40s mm. screwball comedies, which is probably my favourite genre of all of film. That and melodrama, probably. I like the, I like the girly genres. Um, yeah, so, you know, films like To Be or Not To Be, The Awful Truth, Bringing Up Baby, anything with Cary Grant in it, anything directed by George Cukor. Um, I think maybe my absolute favourite is Holiday, 1938, George Cukor, yeah. which may not even qualify as a comedy, though it is very funny in places, but it's enormously sad too of this incredibly unhappy, rich family that Catherine Hepburn is the daughter of with this alcoholic brother, Lou Ayres, who's just such a sad character, and Cary Grant kind of infiltrating it as this fresh breath of fresh air who wants to go out and live life and have excitement. Mm. And again, it's, you know, Catherine Hepburn has to choose whether to make that big decision or not. And you get to see them playing, being acrobats and doing backflips. <laughs> and how cool is that? Yes. <laughs> Much so, fun. See, my, my I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of my problem with the romantic comedy and I don't know what it is because, you know, I love a whole bunch of other genres and I like the fact that they hit the markers of the genre and I like the fact that they're predictable. I find it comforting when a horror movie chucks a bunch of people in a cabin and kills them. That that brings me joy. And yet when a romantic comedy follows a formula, I feel like, oh God, can't you do something else? And I don't know why I buy the formula for other genres and not for the romantic genre. I mean, it's a little bit and this comes out very much with the interview with Sankey, which is you're not the target for these well, formulas. Well, why can't I be? I, I mean, I, I'm against the idea that it's only girls who like mm. romantic comedies. Um, and I know plenty of men who do get on board and like it. But 
it's certainly you're not the target market. And so the things that resonate in the formula perhaps don't resonate with you. Because love is dead, Kirsten. <laughs> <laughs> but also just the sort of the, the mute key, the meet cutes and all of those kind of moments where um, it, it's it's incredibly predictable. You know, as soon as, like, you've got two vaguely good actors um, on the screen at the same time, one's male, one's female, oh, they're going to end up in love. Ooh. You know that from the first scene. Um, but it's sort of that the way that these films play with all of your expectations around that, and it's often the ones that go too far and complicate it, that leave you just feeling a bit flat. Um, you know, there's um, a film called uh, In Good Company, um, Scarlett Johansson and that kid out of the 70s show. Um, and it just kind of... No, no. The, oh, Topher Grace. Yes. Okay. Um, and it's it plays with all of the things that you're expecting to happen and then the characters sort of just drift apart and... It doesn't have that same uh, kind of payoff that you get when it follows the formula absolutely completely. Yes, the the two people who are meant to be in love are finally end up together, regardless of whether or not um, that's how it would actually play out. Mm. Um, there's a film on Netflix at the moment that I think plays around quite well with the conventions of romantic comedy, which is it's romantic, isn't it romantic? Um, the one with Rebel Wilson, Rebel Wilson. and... Um, uh, one of the Hemsworths. Yeah, yeah, the youngest Hemsworth. Um, Hunger Games Hemsworth. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob. Um, Liam. And uh, aside from the joy that that film gave me when both... Um, when Liam Hemsworth dropped his American accent and you had Rebel Wilson and Liam Hemsworth in a Hollywood-esque picture speaking in an Australian accent... Um, that gave me incredible joy. Uh, but it also kind of points out all of the foibles of the romantic comedy, the fact that you have um, the nice best friend who's, of course, meant to be the person she's with, not the rich, incredibly attractive, successful businessman. They're never the right person, apparently. Um, and the way in which, um, you know, suddenly apartments in New York become triple the size and despite the characters not having any income and everything just kind of working out. It plays around with these conventions beautifully to kind of poke holes in them and yet still gives you exactly the storyline that you're wanting Ooh. to have happen, even as it's showing you all of the, the construction that goes into that. So maybe that's one of the problems with romantic comedies these days, which this film is addressing, um, is that it's much harder to put barriers in the way of lovers getting together these days. It's like, well, why don't they just get together, you know? Yeah. So this film is plainly structured to create all these barriers because it's a film within a film. It, yeah. it sounds really interesting. Yeah. The, the ones I, I rely on, and even though I say not the genre for me, I like the ones that are really miserable. <laughs> I, I like the ones They're a miserable romantic oh, comedy. Oh, God, yeah. Like the ones where everybody dies. Fantastic. But, you know, the romantic comedies, my favourite absolutely is My Best Friend's Wedding. And the, I love the that reason too. that I love. See, we must be akin. We, we, we're not on board with the romantic comedy. So the romantic comedy that says, actually, everybody's terrible, um, <laughs> that seems to be the one that, that resonates with you and I, Liz. But the, the one that I love, the, the reason I love that is that. 
it sets up all the tropes and then we start to realise that Julia Roberts is awful. Like, she's this awful, terrible human being. And the the kind of the competition, the Cameron Diaz character who initially presents as being giggly and dumb and stupid, she's the figure of fun, is actually really genuine and really sweet mm. and super likeable. Um, so that, you know, Julia Roberts is playing out the romantic comedy in her head. I'm going to stop the wedding. I'm going to get the, the man I've always loved, etc., etc. And then she realises, actually, I'm the worst person in the world. I shouldn't be with this man because mm. I'm disgusting. And she is. And she essentially allows the the wedding to proceed. And she ends up with, you know, gay best friend, sort of. That That's the kind of consolation prize. But I love the fact that it sets up all of the, the markers of the romantic comedy and then has them all fall down. Beautiful. And that can only really work because of Julia Roberts' star power, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. That she's still got you hooked in, yeah. even though she's a, objectively an awful human being. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was a film that, because it works structure is quite different, it's like I kept thinking, will they get together or not? And not wanting them to, because yeah. Cameron Diaz is lovely. Yeah. And then the other thing is that the Dylan McDermott character is so deadly dull, like yeah. a piece of cardboard, like, yeah. who cares? And <laughs> I found that quite interesting, because he is almost irrelevant to the yeah. film. He's yes. just this object that they've got to have some guy. But it's not like he's Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart where, like, oh, my God, he's so beautiful. What yeah, a prize. Yeah. He's just like, oh, God, you're so dull. Yeah. I mean, Kirsten, you're clearly into the romantic comedy. Is it a kind of gender thing? Is it doing something with the women that is, I don't want to oh, say no. aspirational, which is awful. but they are, uh, The sexual and gender politics in romantic to- comedies are terrible. <laughs> um, and you're saying that th- this one where... As you were talking about My Best Friend's Wedding, the more I think about it is how many of these films are actually about splitting up an existing couple um, so that two new people can get together. And it kind of finishes once they're together. So you have no idea, which, you know, terrible start for a relationship generally. (laughs) Um, But then you think, and, you know, most romantic comedies, despite the fact that in theory they're focused on female characters, most of them would fail the Bechdel test because... You know, they're constantly just fretting about men and they're always very heterosexual and they're very um, white. Um, There's so many issues with it. So it is sort of against my better judgment that I get... I've just been weaned on them, I think. But but I think all those things are fine because I'm not not a great believer in the Bechtel test, I have to say. Um, It's very flawed. Um, I remember seeing a review of that... uh, of the Catherine Bigelow spy film, um, Zero... Dark 30. Dark 30, and it failed the Bechdel test because the two women kept talking about a man. (laughs) Well, that man was Saddam Hussein and they're working out how to kill him. (laughs) Like, dude, this is not a romantic comedy. (laughs) And I thought, this is how stupid criticism can get. Even though I'm sure the women who invented it did not mean for it to be used like that. It's just a little tool. It was literally a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, where I kind of play, so all the issues that I'm very aware that romantic comedies have and, um, you know, as much as I love them, I can pick my favourite films to pieces, you know, can just have a look at Love Actually for how toxic some of those relationships are. Um, but it is also this this platform where that is where I saw most leading women in films. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, certainly the action genre has 
equally terrible stereotypes of male and masculinity in there. Mm. But, um, you know, as a source of getting to see women having agency and making decisions, that was probably growing up the one space where that was where I went to see those films and those screwball comedies and earlier mm. um, sort of melodrama genres, they've petered out a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you didn't have those um, other kind of genres yeah. to kind of pull on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you're right, because it's a female-led genre, so it's a developed genre mm. because of that. Yeah. But it's so interesting in My Best Friend's Wedding, apparently how it was originally shot is the Julia Roberts character meets Cute in the final scene at the wedding. Um, and it's just apparently a little clue. It doesn't go too far, but it played awfully in test yeah. screenings. No one wanted that ending. Yeah. And originally there was far less of the Rupert Everett character, yeah. but every time they put more of him in, more the audiences yeah. loved it. Yeah. And this is the, the thing, and this has been discussed in feminist film criticism for decades, which is even where you have films that seem to work against, like the person you're meant to identify with works against um, what is good for their character or for um, their gender. So where you have a female lead choosing the wrong person or giving in to the weird, stalky, nice guy that's been um, messing around with them for the entire film. Um, even though you might sort of look at that and analyse it as being, but that's working against, um, you know, female empowerment and all the rest of it, audiences don't have to like everything that happens on screen. You can read against... Exactly. Um, that idea of the way that the formula formula plays out, you can have the joy of it hitting all the marks of the formula, even as mm. you don't necessarily identify with the person you're meant to identify with, or you don't get joy from the ending in the same way. I mean, the classic one for this is thinking about the way that melodramas would often mm -hmm. end with um, women returning to the family and returning to the home. And sacrifice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and female audiences reading against the grain yes. of that. Yeah. And very much I remember, you know, when I first did cinema studies reading from Reverence to Rape by Molly Haskell, mm. and that's just an amazing eye-opener about reading against the grain, yeah. really, and pointing out that often, like films from the 30s, 40s and 50s, um, how empowered those women often yeah. were, and then comparing it at that time to films of the 70s where women just disappeared because those genres became despised. Yes, mm. yeah. I mean, it's interesting, even going back to that screwball stuff, I know as, as somebody who do, teaches um, undergraduate students um, a little bit of screwball stuff, they actually really love those empowered women. Mm. You know, you take your, you know, Catherine Hepburn in bringing up baby, that she drives every single part of that. Cary Grant ultimately is, you know, in the, in the nightgown, um, you know, yes. feminised. And she's the one who's, we're going in that direction. Yeah. Um, but the, the response at the end when it's like, well, now we have to get married is always a bit of a groaner. People yeah. are like, oh, why do they have to, why does she have to be domesticated? Yeah. And, and I think that when you look at a lot of those scribble comedies, they appear to be conforming to the domestication of the woman. But when you think about it, there's no way that woman can be domesticated. Yeah. You know, she's not going to be. 
And I think his girl Friday is one of my favourite examples of that, where she's running off to be a housewife in the suburbs. And one of the reasons the Cary Grant character wants her back is because she's such a damn good journalist. And you know that she is going to go back to that work once they're back together at the end. Like, there's no desire for him to stop her doing that work. In fact, he's constantly pushing her in that direction instead of her not going off to be a housewife. Yeah. Look, it's a... You know, I'm, you're almost convincing me, Kirsten, that I need to give it another I'll, I'll, go. I'll give you, you a list of films. Yeah, no, we need no, I a mean, list. you almost literally should do that. Um, I do like Notting Hill, I have to say. Mm. I'm See, a bit of a Julia yeah. Roberts fan, I yeah, think. Like, so am I in a kind of perverse yeah. way. Like, yeah. I like the films where she's maybe not a terribly nice person. Yeah. Mm. Um, because I, I find Notting Hill actually really charming. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing like a Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts yeah, pattern here. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, just chuck them in everything together. I'd be perfectly happy. Um, But if you want to kind of uh, discuss this further and by all means head to uh, Senses of Cinema and have a look at uh, Chakraborty's interview with Elizabeth Sankey. Um, It's a a really interesting interview. We still actually haven't got to see the film yet, uh, which I would really, really love to see. Um, hopefully it'll make its way on the festival circuit. Yeah, so our, yeah, hopefully with MIF coming up in a few months' time, maybe that might find its way in. Um, let's hope so, because I'm very keen to see the film. Uh, but uh, if you want to say anything about romantic comedies and maybe tell Liz and I that we're all wrong and Kirsten's got it all that. right, we're, <laughs> we're happy to be to cop the, the, the schooling from others, um, head to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash cinema and leave a message there for us. As usual, each month your hosts share with you a highlight of something we've watched over the last month. Whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention, we share with you material that has resonated with us so you can hear about it and perhaps watch it as well. We've each seen a lot over the past month. Uh, So, Mark, what are your recommendations for April? Well, too bad you guys missed it. Um, But my recommendation was something that I did that you two didn't. (laughs) Um, <laughs> I got to go to uh, ACME, uh, the Australian Centre for Moving Image, which um, is in Federation Square at, uh, in Melbourne, in the centre of the city, and got to see the first episode of the new and final season of Game of Thrones on the big screen. Um, you know, when I realised I had a ticket, I was terribly excited. I I've, I've, do enjoy the show very much. I literally went back. I, I thought to myself, Watch season seven and get ready for season eight. Lasted five minutes of season seven and thought, I have to go back to the start. At which point I went back to the start and powered through at least the first three seasons and then picked up again at season six. Um, It is really an extraordinary uh, TV show, but even better on a big screen. Even though, you know, let's be honest, that first episode of Game of Thrones is a bit of a... You know, people are talking about it as as being a a kind of table setter. Um, It really was just, hey, remember when these people were in a scene together and it was like episode two of season one when they were sisters? Now they're together again. The joy of that was fine, but on a big screen watching some of the special effects, the, the dragon flights, Kind of a dumb scene within the show itself, but spectacular on a big screen. Um, I had so much fun. People were so into it. When the new um, opening titles came up and it was a different map, oh, 
the the thrill that went through the audience was incredible. People were like, wow, we're not doing the same thing. Um, people were so thrilled. Um, and so it was quite a, a wonderful experience to watch a TV show in a packed cinema full of people who are really into it, getting all of the references, getting all of the jokes, kind of weird, strange brand, um, tossing out kind of bizarre lines here and there had everybody laughing. It was such a great experience, and I would like to watch all of it on a big screen now, please. Well, for six episodes, you can kind of manage that. For six episodes, I could. You're going to go back to season one. But they only did the first episode. (laughs) Uh, Surely, surely they'll have to do the final. They will have to, and if not, like, I'm going to petition them. (laughs) Just rent out a cinema. I'm sure you could make a killing. You could. Yes, someone should do that. Yes. They'll all die anyway. Yeah. Oh, Liz. But it's seeing how they die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll, we'll end the, the podcast with me sobbing. Yes. Yeah. Not that I'm an advocate for gambling at all, but I'm sure there must be odds being taken on which characters go next. Yes. Oh, Sport Bets yes. probably has a book on it. Yeah. <laughs> Who gets the Iron Throne and who's going to die? Fantastic. Anyway. I'd, I'd really love it. I'd, I mean, the show's not like this, so it's not going to end quite like this, but I'd love it if, you know, the dragon just accidentally burns the throne to, yeah. you know, melted. A melted Iron Throne. Yeah. yeah. No one gets it. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fair. Liz? So a few things. Um, at the cinema, one of my favourite films I've seen is Us, the Jordan Peele mm. film. Oh. His latest horror movie. Um, have either of you guys I seen it? I have seen it. Yeah. I really... Uh, liked its play on modern American politics. I'd lo- actually, you know, the, and it's satire. It's so funny in places, yet it's extremely scary in places. I love the Elizabeth Moss horrible white oh, they were fantastic. woman and her husband. Not sure who plays her husband. That They're such awful human beings yes. and they're awful twin daughters. Yes. <laughs> They deserved all bad things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only issue I would have with it is the section near the end, which is all exposition, where a main character tells you, uh, explains the mystery underneath. This is what actually happened. It's like, oh, really? I could have worked that out on the day. Yeah. Come to some approximation. I really enjoyed it too um, because I thought it was brilliantly acted. I loved the, the, the... whole middle section of it is just home invasion. Yep. The premise being that, you know, everybody has a doppelganger, essentially. Yep. The doppelgangers come back to get you. Yes. And so there is a, a couple of home invasions, including Elizabeth Moss, um, where doppelgangers come back to kill their their opposite or their, their kind of image. Um, that stuff I found really scary, really well shot, really exciting. Mm. I kind of struggled a little, little bit with the and now here is the metaphor. Yes. You know, so and, and we've got about 17 metaphors. So that, as you say, that final sequence I found like, oh, all right, so we've got to tick off all of these things, do we, to yep. explain all of the business that's been going on. And it didn't need that at all. I mean, no, the metaphor didn't. is just there yes, anyway. Yeah. You know, it yeah. doesn't need to be hammered home. So yeah. I think at the end, kind of, it's about underestimating audiences and mm. perhaps trying to make sure the box office is as big as possible by not letting people go, well, I don't didn't, what was yeah. that about? Yeah. But as a, as a film that, I mean, one of the things I really appreciated about that film was that it took on a really difficult subject mm-hmm. to try and make sense of, the idea of 
an underclass and an overclass, yes. I guess, and and what that is to be the person who's constantly at the bottom. And making um, that real and literal. Yeah. You know, there's a literal underclass live yeah. under the ground. Yeah. Who come out and get us. Yeah. Which is, like, I, I love the idea. I just yeah. wasn't crazy about the execution. Yeah. Terrific. Lupita Nyong'o apparently can act. She can indeed act. Yeah. Her doppelganger is incredibly frightening. Really creepy. Yeah. Really Super creepy. creepy figure. Yeah. And like really interesting costume designs like the red prison style uniforms. Yes. Makes you think of that prison industrial complex. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is. It's wonderful. Yeah. Kirsten. Uh, so probably not surprisingly after our last segment, um, my recommendation is a romantic comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, I was able to see Top End Wedding, um, which is the new film oh. by Wayne Blair, written by Miranda Tapsell and Joshua Tyler. Um, and, I mean, romantic. there are a few Australian romantic comedies, but, yep. um, you know, they're a little bit few and far between. Um, and this is a really beautiful, um, really well-made romantic comedy, um, very convincing um, story about... Um, a young kind of power couple, lawyers in Sydney, I think it's Sydney, uh, might be Brisbane, um, generic Australian East Coast city, um, <laughs> and uh, one of them, um, Ned, uh, has just sort of quit his job, but is about to propose to um, his partner, uh, played by Miranda, Miranda Tapsell, Lauren, um, who's just been promoted, um, Adelaide. Adelaide, oh, not East Coast not at East all. Not East Coast at all. Um, and so it sort of starts with a proposal and she wants to head home um, back up to Darwin to get married. Um, but when she arrives there, she discovers that her mum has walked out of the house and no one knows where she is. So they've got to track her down. Um, and in doing so, rediscover um, sort of family history and reconnect with um, the wider community that has become isolated from both the mother as well as um, from Lauren having moved down to the big city. Um, and it's a really sweet film. It's got all of the ups and downs and all the bits that you expect. Um, some great references to my favourite football team in there at the end as well. So, you know, I was very happy. Um, and incredible scenery shot around the Northern Territory and the Tiwi Islands. Um, so that's coming out on the 2nd of May in Australia. Um, and it has been making its way around a few different fef festivals overseas as well. I highly recommend that. I'm looking oh, forward to it. So am I. Um, the, the last decent romantic comedy I think that we did was Ali's Wedding, which I really mm. loved yes. as well. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping that it's going to... Because Top End Wedding does look terrific, and I love Miranda Tapsell. So um, it's, who's the director? Wayne? Is it Wayne, Wayne Blair? Wayne Blair, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely looking forward to that. Okay, so thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. And thanks to Kirsten, of course, and to our wonderful third chair for this month, Liz Burke. Thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who is our very own Manic Pixie audio master. Um, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will speak to you again next month. Bye.